0: Our first reading is from the book of Proverbs. Let us listen to God's word. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her animals. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servant girls. She calls from the highest places in town. You that are simple, turn in here. To those without sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Lay aside immaturity and live and walk in the way of insight. Our second lesson is from the Gospel of Matthew. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? Then why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow for it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Join us now for week two of our summer sermon series, Practices of Faith and Sanity. Welcome Dr. Jenkins, who shares this week's message when sorrow falls upon the wise, the practice of equanimity. Let
1: us pray. God, you promise to be near each of us, wherever we may be. If you are near to us, then we can never really be separated from one another. Though miles and time and even death may intervene Hold us, we pray, together in you. Amen. I suspect this has happened to you. It certainly has happened to me on a long flight somewhere. Someone sits down next to you and, for whatever reason, decides that you are trustworthy and begins to open up talking to you about things that perhaps I've never told anyone. Well, today, that's what I'm doing. So if um, you don't want to sit next to a stranger who's telling you something intimate, I would suggest you um, make for the door of the plane now. Things had not been going well My therapist told me I wasn't paranoid, that they really were out to get me. My spiritual director said that I lived in a lion's den, and as long as I lived there, things weren't likely to get better. I was experiencing what most folks in leadership and higher education experience from time to time. Irreconcilable, conflicting perspectives among constituents and supporters, and the stress that comes from being held responsible for things over which you have no control. To make matters worse, I have had a lifelong struggle with depression and anxiety, not sadness and worry, that's very different, but depression and anxiety. And my doctors had not at that point found the right combination of medications and treatments to lift the depression or to quiet the anxiety that I had known from my youth. I can't even remember now what specific issues were on the table as I came to that particular and very tense meeting of the Board of Trustees. From a distance of some years, I seem to recall that things were really going pretty well. Donations to the school were sufficient, enrollment was steady the faculty was competent, the students were just being students, but I guess it was like what Rabbi Ed Friedman, the family systems therapist, used to say, when things are going well, watch out, because just one day into this four-day-long board meeting, things did not feel like they were going well at all. And as I retreated to our home at the end of that first long day, I was in the pits. The recordings in my head were playing and replaying the same refrain, I am a failure. I am not worthwhile. I do not deserve to be loved or respected. Finally, everyone in the world will know what I've always suspected. I am an imposter, unqualified to do the work to which I've been called. Although I know, in the light of reason and retrospective sanity, that these messages were untrue, at that time I felt utterly alone, abandoned, on my own, and without hope. Now, I wish I could tell you that this is one of those inspiring stories of how a leader in the face of adversity, in the darkest of hours, discovers inner reserves and resources of strength and resilience and somehow triumphs over his internal demons. But this is not that kind of story. At the end of that long, long day of committee meetings, plenary, and executive sessions, after an official dinner that required me, an introvert, to pretend I was the monarch of extroverts and an even longer evening bull session over drinks with board members, I returned home and went to bed, but not to sleep. I rolled and tossed until I gave up on sleep, got up, went out to the sun porch, brooded and drank far too much bourbon. On the list of things a depressed person needs in order to cope well with depression, booze and insomnia do not appear. Descending deeper into what Churchill called the black dog of depression, anxious over what might or might not happen in the days to come, I began to wonder if maybe, maybe the world could do without me, and maybe I could do without it. Self-pity and self-loathing often go hand-in-hand with clinical depression and can lead the way to self-destruction. Depression lies to us, as author Jenny Lawson says in her wonderful new book, Broken But in the Best Possible Way. Jenny adds, you can recognize depression's lies when you are sane or stable or balanced. But when you are in the depths of a depression, they seem real. When I'm in in that hole, she says, I remind myself that my brain is lying to me and that I'll realize that fully when I recover. And I do. This is why psychiatrist Mark Epstein says, you shouldn't believe everything you think. Like a lot of people who have stepped onto that deadly threshold, who have teetered at the edge, I'm not sure exactly what pulled me back. But I'm grateful for whatever power held onto my collar that night and kept me from acting out the suicidal fantasies my brain was foisting on me until at last, exhausted and, uh, quote, overserved, I fell asleep to rise another day. I don't know what saved me that night, what saved me from myself, but I'm grateful for whatever it was, and I am grateful also that somehow after that critical moment, somehow I found the humility to admit just how bad my depression was and to seek out every kind of assistance I could, including that offered by better doctors, better treatments, and better personal habits and spiritual practices in order to help me deal with depression and anxiety. It was during that time that I came to realize something. Head knowledge alone makes a poor life jacket if you fall overboard in a storm. For the stormiest days, something more durable, something more reliable is needed, and it is the very thing I was lowest on, the cultivation of wisdom. So I began to search in places familiar and unfamiliar for all the wisdom I could find wherever I could find it, whether in the Bible and books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, or in the Gospels, among Stoic philosophers like Seneca and Epictetus, or dusty desert hermits of the early church, with Buddhist monks or ancient Taoist scribes. I recall one morning, as I began my new discipline of daily meditation, reading this phrase that is the title for today's thoughts, When Sorrow Falls upon the wise. The phrase occurs in a book-length eighth-century poem originally written in Sanskrit, The Way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva. What happens, the sage poet asks, when sorrow falls upon the wise? Well, I sure knew what happens when sorrow falls upon a fool. I have been down that road to the dead end, so what does happen when sorrow falls upon the wise? According to Shanta Deva, the wise make use of their sorrow and their suffering to allow themselves to become more compassionate to others in their sorrow and suffering." they allow their sorrow to build bridges between themselves and others. The wise allow their own suffering to become occasions of transformation, creating in them the virtue of equanimity, that inner balance, that sanity, that priceless confidence that understands that nothing external to us need take away our joy, our gratitude, our love of life, and our compassion for others. Now, I ask for forbearance today. I'm not really preaching a sermon at all. I have no flights of rhetoric, uh, really no homiletical stories at all. I simply want to bear witness to a wisdom that the Lord Jesus himself lived daily and which took him to and through the cross to a risen life, I want to bear witness to the faith that with help we can grow to trust that all of life is in the hands of one greater and better than we can imagine. We can, if we will, learn to entrust all we cannot know to the God we cannot name. Christianity has caricatured itself almost to death, trying to reduce the subtleties and profundities of faith and life to slogans that will fit on a bumper sticker. One popular Christian website Uh, imitating the famous website The Onion, lampooned such superficiality with headlines like this, Christian mountain climber recovering in ICU after deciding to let go and let God. I live in the American South, where highway billboards announce, Jesus saves, repent, or just John 3.16, as though these words and numbers alone are magical and that they can transform lives just by being invoked. Perhaps I'm too cynical, but I don't see it. Life is difficult and complicated. What I do see, however... Is an insight that the reformer john calvin laid down several hundred years ago when the reform movement in christianity was just beginning true wisdom he said comes from god no matter what its source on earth may be and the deeper i reach into the treasury of the world's wisdom the more sure i've become that the business of faith is first and foremost a response to the question, is there life before death? Or as our own Christian faith declares, Jesus Christ came so that we might have life and have it abundantly. If there is life before death, if we are intended for abundant life, How do we experience it broken as we are? The wise are taught by life itself, it seems. They understand that life is given to us by the same God who holds all things in love. The wise take each moment into their hands, convinced that life is a precious, irreplaceable, and unique gift, and they gently consider that moment they are given. They examine it. They reflect upon it. They seek to know that moment as it is and not as they would prefer it to be. They turn each moment into their very own tutor, and they sit at this tutor's feet until the lesson is done. Then they move on. Perhaps the wise have figured out why some cultures don't even have a word for religion. The closest Japanese culture has for the English word religion is one that means learning from reality. I wonder what such a perspective on religion could teach those of us who are and who remain Christian in these times, remembering that we do not share the same religion even with our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Though we respect and hallow His faith and its traditions and its ancient texts and its followers, Jesus and we are not adherents to the same religion, not commonly conceived. But when I come to the Sermon on the Mount, ah, I sense the possibility that Jesus and we and folks from a lot of different faith traditions might have a great deal to share if we understood Religion, not so much as a collection of doctrines to which we must adhere in order to belong, but as a commitment to learn from the life God gives us so that we may become wise. When sorrow falls upon the wise, the wise know better than to waste the pain. That's what the wise do. And so, our practice this week goes to the very heart of our faith and the slow acquisition of wisdom. It involves quiet reflection on a specific portion of Scripture. It could be a passage from the Psalms, such as Psalm 23, or an Old Testament prophet, Amos, or Hosea, or Micah, as last week, from an epistle or a gospel, even from a few words such as Jesus saying again and again, do not be anxious. While there is no doubt that careful, critical, even scholarly biblical study is rich and important to our maturity in the faith, there is also a central place for the reflective and prayerful reading of the Bible, simply seeking to hear the living Word, who is God, speaking through these very human words that are written down. This week, I want to encourage us to focus our ears, the ears of our hearts, on the Sermon on the Mount. St. Matthew, three chapters, chapters five through seven. Reading these chapters daily, listening daily, for what our Lord Jesus may wish to learn from this about living remembering daily that god's ultimate purpose is not to make us more religious but to make us fully human in the likeness of jesus entering daily into such a practice trains the mind and it trains the heart to listen to something other than our own dull recordings i think you'll find this practice of reflection on biblical text works especially well in combination with the practice we introduced last week in contemplation, visualizing the love of God as a mighty rushing stream, washing over us and washing over all others, bathing us with the good news that nothing and no one is beyond the reach of God's love and mercy and forgiveness. Friends, one of the things I've noticed as I've gotten older uh, is the loss of balance. I find that if I stand up too quickly, I teeter, and all kinds of funny things happen, and sometimes not so funny things. How do we practice balance? That's what equanimity comes down to. How do we practice keeping our balance in a world that seems devoted to throwing us off of it? Finding A center that will hold seems to be the key. Something beyond our feelings alone that we can count on. And it does require practice. So this week as we go out into the world, my encouragement is not that we run from the world, but that we live in it as persons who know that the world need not throw us off balance. And now may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, always. Amen.